0: Dr. Steven Belinsky is a teacher who starts in the fall with his class with a jar of beans on his desk. And he asks the class how many beans are in the jar and he gets them to guess. Everybody gets a guess, and then he tells who's the, the closest, and then they get to guess again until somebody gets the right answer. And then he goes to the whiteboard. And he asks them their favorite songs and makes a list. And once he gets that list in place, he goes over to the jar and he says, Now, who was right? And they all point to the person who got the number right. And then he goes over to the whiteboard and he says, Who's right? And they say, Well, you know, that, that, of course they get that reaction. You know, you know, it's a matter of personal preference, personal taste. No, nobody's right. He says, okay, now, is morality doing right, doing wrong? Is it more like how many beans are in the jar? Or is it more like your favorite song? And what he has found is increasingly, over the years, more and more students are answering that morality is more like your favorite song. Than the beans in the jar. Now that's kind of alarming because I and I think you and I know that moral relativism is on the rise and has been for a long time. How are we called to engage that kind of culture? And this morning, how can we be influential in it? Well, the answer I think we're going to see from Jesus' high priestly prayer in the upper room is that we're called to be in the world, but not of it. From the Word of God, John 17, verses 13 through 18, this is one section of Jesus' prayer for us, for his disciples. As we enter a season of Lent, as we look down the corridor, towards the cross and beyond. Let's begin with the end in mind, what Jesus has in mind for us through his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, how we are to be in the world, not of it. Hear God's word this morning. But now I'm, I'm coming to you, he's praying to his father. Now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is not just information for our minds, but power to our souls and to our lives. Lord, may we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Kreeft is a philosopher, a professor. He's been at... Uh, Boston College for decades and he said this No culture in history has ever embraced moral relativism and survived Our own culture therefore will either one be the first to disprove history's clearest lesson Or two persist in relativism and die Or three repent of its relativism and live There is no other option. Well, that sounds very dire, doesn't it? But this morning, I think what we're going to see is that there is a great hope and that we have it. We've had this series called Second Chances, which has centered on how God uses the past as compost for something new, for new life. Not not second chances to just try harder and do better next time but that God is in the redemption business, that he's making old things new, that he's actually taking our past mistakes and doing something wonderful with them. But this morning, uh, instead of as we, has been our pattern to look at one of the Old Testament characters, one of the prophets or priests or kings, to lead us in this lesson, this morning, you are... our our front and center here. Christ in you, rather. Not a prophet, a priest, or a king, but how ordinary people, how ordinary people can enter into our cultural moment to see God in the redemption business. That we're called to be salt. Not to stay, as Becky Pippert said, not to stay in the salt shaker, but to go out into the world. We're, We're called to be salt. But not to lose our saltiness in the midst of our culture. To be in the world, but not of it. So how can we be immersed in our culture, in our times, in our cultural moment, and not become just like it? You know, the classic illustration about this is the frog in the kettle. If you take a frog, it's kind of a gruesome image, really, but if you take a frog (laughs) and put it in a boiling kettle, it'll jump out. Now, I've never tried this. Maybe you... Maybe when I was younger I might have tried it. But You take a frog, put them in a boiling kettle, it'll jump right out. But if you take it, a frog and put it in a lukewarm kettle and turn up the heat slowly, it won't notice. How, how can we be in our culture, live our lives, go out about our daily lives, and not have our values imperceptibly cooked as the Temperature goes up on moral relativism. How is it that we can keep from being drawn into that? How can we be in the world and not of it? Christians are sent in the world not to be against culture, but to be agents of change in culture, to be salt and light. That doesn't mean that we carve out some mushy middle ground where we're just trying to get along with everybody and just trying to lure them to church nor does it mean that we run into culture with our gospel guns ablazing. So how do we carve out the space and time to be influential? Jesus knew when to turn the other cheek. He also knew when to turn over the tables. He knew how to love people who are far from God, but not to leave them there at a distance. The scripture des- describes our po- posture in culture. It describes it. It basically says that we're called to be weird. (laughs) Peculiar people. Called out ones. Resident aliens. These are the kinds of things that scripture calls you. Don't be offended. So how? That's our question this morning. How? How can we be in the world but not of the world? And the answer we're going to see here is that we need to know where to stand, where to stand. Sometimes we stand apart, sometimes we stand up close, but we always stand between two worlds. That's where the Christian is called to stand, apart, up close, or between two worlds. First, sometimes we're called to stand apart, not of the world, it's like Jesus' caution about not losing your saltiness. You know, if you lose your saltiness, you're just dirt. So we're called to be out of the salt shaker into the world, but salty. Like like dancing to the beat of a different drum, to be close to the action, close to the mess. Sometimes, maybe even getting a little a little messy. Uh, close to the action, uh, but. Standing distinct apart from the world. You know people who dance to a different drum. Maybe there's one of those in your family, right? They're they a little weird. They're a little peculiar. They're out of step with the times. Uh, in some ways, we're called to be out of step with the times, too. You say, well, well, doesn't God so love the world so why is he saying you're not to be of the world? I, I, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding my categories. Let's, let's get this straight here. What does Jesus mean by the world? He uses the word cosmos for the world. And that word is used in three different ways. First, so when, when he says in verse 14, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, we've got to distinguish that from two other ways that that word is, is usually used. First, the word world is often used just for the physical world, you know, stuff. Like in John 1.10, it says, you know, everything that was made in the world was made through him. And, and when God made the world, he made it good. He said, this is good. He said, I love what I made. This is This is good. So sometimes that word world just means the stuff that God made. But second, sometimes the world is... This word cosmos signifies people who are estranged from God. We're living life far from God. For God so loved the world. That's an instance of this, John 3, 16. God so loved the people who were estranged from him that he sent his one only son that whoever should believe him In him would not perish but have everlasting life. God moved towards people estranged from him. But that's not the meaning of world in this instance. In this instance, we are called to be distinct, not of the world. And in this instance, what Jesus is referring to as cosmos is the corrupt system, the corrupt systems of the world. Uh, 1 John 2.17 says this, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The corrupt systems of the world. The cosmos. that's, That's this instance of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Now, th- th- that word lust is jarring, is it not? It's, it's harsh. What's he saying? What's he saying? Let's get at exactly what he's saying. He's talking about the systems of the world that play upon our selfish hungers. Our hungers that when we, when we try to satisfy them, they just get larger, they get They get bigger. They increase. Selfish hungers. Like what Rockefeller said when somebody asked him, how much money is enough for most people? He said, just a little bit more. Just a little more, and then a little more, and then a little more. Corruption is that which plays upon our insatiable, selfish desires. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you've probably heard that name. He was a Russian dissident and poet. He was sent to the Russian gulag, the concentration camps during World War II. And, you know, when life is stripped down to survival, you learn lessons about human nature that are not really evident or as accessible in other places. And one of the things that he learned was about being of the world, that the corrupt systems of this world do play upon our selfish desires. He was in the kitchen... And he worked in the kitchen for some time, and he realized that in the kitchen, you had the opportunity to scoop out extra rations, if you wished. And that's what people often did. They would get extra rations of food. Now, why this is such a big deal is that they made just enough food calculated for the number of prisoners to just barely sustain everyone's life, about 1,400, 1,500 calories to sustain a day to, s- to sustain their life. So that means if you take an extra ration of food, what are you doing? Somebody else is dipping below the line of survival. What Solzhenitsyn learned in that position is that he could feed his body, or he could feed his soul. It was a, it was a very clear and stark choice. Uh, you see, sometimes we must stand apart from the corrupt systems of this world. And you say, well, I can see how corruption uh, measures out like that. I mean, that's, that's very clear. How does it measure out today? How does it play upon our desires today? Well, according to a survey from reviews.org, 71% of us start our day, even before we get out of bed, how? By scrolling on our phones. Before we get out of bed in the morning, 71% of us are scrolling. There's a current example of letting somebody else play upon your desires, you're abdicating your own role to manage your hungers and desires and letting, letting the, the lure of just a little bit more play upon your mind right as you wake up. You're entrusting your mind and your meditations to somebody else's algorithm. So for example, internet marking plays upon our fears. FOMO, what's that? Fear of missing out, right? So all of a sudden, something you didn't know you were supposed to be a part of, now you're afraid that you're not a part of it because you've seen it. Everybody else is a part of it. And so we get drawn into the next big thing, and suddenly we're doing too much, buying too much, paying too much attention to too much. We're we're buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even really care that much about, right? You've heard that. And then suddenly there's no time to build the kind of community that we, were, we are trying to build here in this place. We want to be a church of influence. I know that you want that. We want Christianity to be influential. You felt that as I was talking about that opening example of that encroaching moral relativism. We want the church, we want Christianity, we want to be influential in our culture. How much time of the 160 hours, 68 hours a week that, that you have, how much time are we devoted to screen time? And how much time are we devoted to creating community like we are this morning? We'll say, well, where do I start, you know, kind of curtailing the influence of, of somebody else's algorithm of, of the screen time? Well... You, you've come here this morning to spend an hour in worship, and it is so good for us to be together. We're called to be together. And I wonder, if, if you're here once a month, would you consider coming twice a month? It would make a huge difference. You know, sometimes I think um, to myself, I wonder if there's somebody who just needs me to be here just to sing alongside them. You ever think about that, that... That you are bringing an encouraging presence? That you have a ministry of presence? Now, if you come here for an hour, would you consider staying an extra hour and building relationships with people a little bit in a little bit more intimate setting in one of the classrooms around here? That's where to start. But you can also start at home. By the way, do you, you, y'all don't hear that from me as a, finger-wagging, do you? I mean, I, I, I'm just inviting you. It's just an invitation that there are a lot of people who are creating time and space for us to be together. Let's, let's avail ourselves of it. But you can, you can start at home, too. You can start in the screen time that you have. You know, every Christian is making a decision about how much the screens control our lives. And so this morning in your bulletin, you can see uh, on the uh, outline page, you can see a book recommendation by Andy Crouch. It's called The Tech Wise Family. I, I think every parent should read that book in order to understand the influence of screens on your family. All of us should become far more aware of how someone else is playing upon our selfish desires that we not be drawn into the the of-the-world posture that we see around us. They're playing upon our vulnerabilities and hungers, the fear of missing it out and quickening our pace, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That just means the idea that I'm in control of my life and I'm fiercely independent and and I'm called to be that. How can we find abundance if we're constantly feeding at the same trough of the world? Sometimes we need to stand apart. Sometimes we need to stand apart. But sometimes we need to stand up close to be out of the salt shaker and into the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Jesus says, but that they be called into the world, just as Jesus has come into the world, down into our mess, we're called into that mess. Uh, In the world, as present citizens, we're dual citizens. Close enough to be relevant, but without compromising our values. That's what it means to be salt that doesn't lose its saltiness. To be relevant, but without compromise. I love this story of uh, two monks who made this pledge of chastity for their whole lives to abstain from sexual activity. One day as they were traveling along, they were walking along, they came upon a stream and there was a woman standing there who needed to get across but she was afraid of the current so she stayed out of the stream they offered to, you know, the older monk offered that they carry her across, and so he instructed his young protege to take the other side of her, and they lifted her up and carried her across the stream and left her on the other side and went on their merry way. A couple miles down the road of silence, the younger monk said to the older monk, My father, I'm very disappointed in you that you had us carry that woman across, we, we, we made our vows, and you had us touch that woman. And he said to him, the older monk said to his, his younger understudy, he said, I left that woman by the creek side. You still seem to be carrying her. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Boy, that's easy, isn't it? Just to completely separate ourselves. From the mess, to be holier than thou. But what does he pray? He prays, but that you would keep them from the evil one. In other words, he's saying we can be alongside people of the world and yet to be free from evil. It's possible. We can be proximate to a world in need to have and to show genuine compassion for people who are living life far from God, not expecting them to follow the norms that we value until they first learn to follow Jesus. Now, why do we often look at the world and expect people to follow our norms when they don't even follow Christ? It's possible. To be immersed in the world, in the corrupt systems of the world, and yet be free from evil. Let me give you an example. You see these signs all around the room. You see these pictures around the room. You know the World Mission Conference is coming. Leon DeLorens is one of our great partners in Haiti. He's a pastor uh, who I think if he were president of Haiti, the, the country would turn around. And there have been people who have asked him to run. It's a very dangerous thing to be president of Haiti, though. What is he doing? He has, he has created community in Haiti. He's created churches, about a half dozen of them. Medical clinics, vocational schools, uh, entrepreneurial initiatives and coaching networks. He has, uh, is building a high school. He wants to build a Bible school to train ministers. I've been down there a number of times, and what I'm convinced of is that Leon is in the midst of one of the most corrupt systems, corrupt countries in the world, and yet he is not of the world. He's not feathering his own nest. I mean, How many billions of dollars has the United States poured into that country? And where has it gone? Simply enabling a corrupt system. Meanwhile, here's a man who is slowly influencing the next generation. Somebody who's being faithful in the world, but not of the world. You see, it's possible. It's possible. He's proximate to a world in need, without becoming of the world. Sometimes we need to stand up close. We need to stand up close. You say, well, okay, so sometimes we need to stand apart. Sometimes we need to stand up close. Jesus turned the other cheek. Jesus turned over the tables. I'm just me. How do I I understand when I'm to stand up cr- close, and how I'm to stand up close, and how I'm to stand far away. Well, that, that takes us to really our final move here, and this is, this is the crux of it, is we're to be discerning between two worlds. Sometimes we stand up close, sometimes far away, but always between two worlds. That means we're to be relevant without compromise at the same time, both and, not either or. That's difficult. It's easy to be relevant. It's it's easy to be sort of orthodox. It's hard to be both at the same time. But that's where we're called. Are you getting what I'm saying? Both and, not either or. Both. We need to stand close enough to stoke the fires, the good and the true and the beautiful, without getting burned. We need to be relevant without compromise and to know how to be in the world, not of it. But... Christians have a history of choosing either or. During the 1920s, when people first began to debate evolution, it was evident that a different world was at play, a worldview was at play, a naturalistic worldview. One that says it's a closed universe, one that says we're just a some crazy accident. One that says that everything is just what you can smell and taste and touch and feel and see. Measurable boiled down, reduced down. And some people were looking at the data and drawing the conclusion that life was just one big accident. Many Christians wanted to separate from culture, to stand apart, away from that influence entirely during this this period of time. They just wanted to get away from everything. And so they began to sort of create churches that, that were completely out of touch with culture, Completely out of touch. And reinventing everything under the banner of church. Other churches, other Christians said, we need to be relevant. We need the church to stay relevant. We just need to be about good deeds and helping people and social activism and not worry about all of this Bible-believing stuff, all of these these, these inconvenient truths of Scripture. And so you... You see, I've painted for you the fundamentalist, modernist debate. But others, a few, did pursue relevance without compromise. Once upon a time, they were simply known as evangelical, evangelicals. And that just simply means that they're orthodox and outward. They, they knew how to be faithful and helpful at the same time. John Stott made this point. John Stott, if you've ever done any Bible studies or, or taught the, the scriptures, you know that John Stott is one of the, 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 the most important figures in the last uh, half century to help us understand how to teach the Bible well. He is one of the founders of uh, InterVarsity Fellowship and Lausanne Covenant, uh, he said this. From the 1920s to 1970s, evangelicals were preoccupied with the task of defending historical biblical faith against attacks of theological liberalism and reacting against the social gospel. But now we're convinced that God has given us a social as well as an evangelistic responsibility in the world. Yet half a century of neglect has put us behind in this area. We have a long way to catch up. And we're in the midst of that same kind of division today where people are choosing either or. Either to be relevant or to be faithful. We need to be both. Just as you sent me into the world, Jesus says in verse 18. Just as you sent me into the world. You think Jesus got messy when he came into the world? We're in a season of the cross. How messy is the cross? To be in the world but not of it is to live well in Babylon. Babylon. You heard Tyler read from Jeremiah 29. You know, for generations, Israel was supposed to be separate. The, the, the concern was that they were going to sync up with the, with the pagan ideologies of the day. And so God was trying to create an identity of a people. But then they began to sync up. They began to to to, uh, to, to, to sacrifice to foreign gods and idols in order to create treaties and to try to preserve themselves, in order to preserve the life of Israel. And so God began to use that very corrupt culture to help Israel grow up. He said, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For the welfare you find in that city will be your welfare as well. Well, it's very disheartening to see Christians dividing either or. You know, I, you you think about the commercial at uh, at, at the Super Bowl. I, I'm not sure whether uh, Taylor and and uh, and uh, Kelsey got 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 more more uh, attention this past Super Bowl, uh, or whether it was He Gets Us that commercial that got more attention. But I could see people dividing in this way, this either or way, when they see someone washing someone's feet, who. Uh, That represents an ideology or an agenda that's always in our face and very frustrating. I understand that. I understand the reaction against it. But as we seek to be proximate to culture, salty and distinct, some people are going to emphasize starting a conversation. And where do you start the conversation? Some people are going to emphasize being relevant, you see. Some people are going to emphasize reaching out to people who are far from God and they're going to seem far from God when they go out there. They're going to seem like like Jesus seemed to others when he ate with sinners and tax collectors. You see, it's easy to affirm the idea of loving your enemies, but it's hard to love a person. That's just where we're called, to be between two worlds, out of the salt shaker and into the world. So I would just leave you with this quotation. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So as we enter into this week where we anticipate, how do we face outward as a church? Let's remember. We're called the both-and, relevance without compromise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but you humbled yourself. You took on the nature of a servant. You stepped into our mess. And being found in appearance as a man, you humbled yourself even to death on the cross. Lord, in the coming season, would you help us to be a people who face outwardly with confidence, knowing that you have prayed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.